This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh! Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense, and you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. Now, for those of you listening in our radio audience and on podcasts, Give me a minute because i got to sort of set the scene. I'm not in a restaurant. I'm in what we call the hub of our broadcast center in New York because I'm up here for election week. So for those who are watching on CBS News streaming, you're seeing the takeout in a completely different format. I've got a nice touch screen behind me. Don't worry, I'm not going to touch it, but the takeout logo is back there. So what did we do this week pre-election? Well, about a week ago, August, October 29th to be exact, we flew to Santa Fe, New Mexico, to see California Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom. Why was he in New Mexico? Well, because the other Democratic governor in New Mexico, Michelle Lujan Grisham, is running for re-election, and that race is surprisingly competitive. So Gavin Newsom flew to New Mexico to give her some help. He's got a huge digital operation. He's got one of the largest national fundraising bases. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, is a political draw. And he was there on stage. We saw him with lots of Democratic activists in Santa Fe. They had just come back from canvassing and door knocking. Standing room only, huge round of applause. And the governor of New Mexico, very happy that Gavin Newsom was there to help her out, to boost turnout, to boost energy, started things off by explaining to her audience of Democrats, many of whom know Gavin Newsom, why he's important and why she was glad he was in Santa Fe. Let's take a listen. And then the interview with Gavin Newsom comes right after that. A governor that is leading the country, that inspired, frankly inspired many of us, including me, to think about running for governor and making a difference. He's the kind of guy that nationally makes sure that the rest of us get elected. He invests, he shows up, he's knocking on doors, he's making phone calls, he's clear about all of the issues that we know are critical. Not just choice, which is 
on the ballot in my state. They want a constitutional amendment to ban abortion. I just got rid of that. I want to put it right back, all right? Absolutely not, but he's doing the work. And I need to tell you, we need him. So our interview with Governor Gavin Newsom has many parts. We started with something that he's asked all the time, and Governor Newsom is anything if practiced in the idea and the concept of deflecting whether or not he's going to be a presidential candidate anytime soon or ever. And I tried to come up with a unique way to ask him that question, because I've asked it to him before. Dozens upon dozens of other reporters have as well. But we also, in this segment of the interview, talked to him about the overall atmosphere and how much President Biden bears responsibility for what appears to be a really tough political climate, not just for Democrats nationally, but for those running in House and Senate races. Take a listen. Governor Newsom, thanks for sitting down with us. Great to be with you. Am I sitting in the presence of a future president of the United States? No. No. How, do you, how can you be so sure? Uh, because it's not my ambition. It's not the direction that I'm leaning into. Uh, it's not the moment. Uh, the moment, though, is existential. And it's why I'm here in New Mexico. It's why I've been very aggressive and proactive across the country in expressing my concerns about what's happened to the Democratic Party and how we're being destroyed on messaging and how we've been too much and too often on the defensive and how we need to go on the offense and how we need to advance our cause in states in particular, which are the front and center of the rights revolution. So one way to answer that question is, I will never run for president of the United States. Can you say that? Yeah, I'm not, I have no interest. I mean, look. That's different. You know that's different. I get it. You know, I've, I've joked about it. I said I've said no in 15 different languages. Right. I've said sub-zero. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, it, so it's, it's, it's frustrating because I get it. Trust me, I get it. How many politicians right. have we seen? And you just roll your eyes because they're just oozing with ambition. And everything they're doing a, suggests otherwise. A donor list, a digital list, yeah. an email list that is the envy of anyone who might seek this office yeah. on the Democratic side. You are the governor of the most populous state, soon to surpass Germany as the fourth yeah. largest economy yeah. in the world. Yeah. That positions you in a way that makes everyone inevitably wonder. Ah, look, I just want to, I've said it before, I, I got to sleep at night. I got to meet this moment. I've never, I've never expected to live at a moment in history that we're living in or living through at this moment. Uh, I can't believe the other side is winning, and they are right now. You have to, I think we have to level set. I think Democrats can, we could fall complacent and, and we sort of delude ourselves. The other side is ruthless. They're winning the messaging war. They put us on the defense over and over and over again. Uh, they have weaponized grievance. They've amplified a message with surround sound, and we have nothing comparable on our side. It's remarkable Democrats have done as well as they've done under these circumstances, and I'm trying to express a different circumstance, which is leaning forward. What do we do about it? And I'm trying to iterate in real time on behalf of 40 million Americans in the state that I represent, California. How big of the blame for what you just described should fall appropriately on the shoulders of the President of the United States? The Democratic Party. Isn't he the leader? Here's, we're all leaders in our own right. It's not the guy or gal on the white horse that's going to come save the day. It's all of us that have a responsibility and a role to play. I remember Bobby Kennedy giving one of the great speeches of all time, reflecting on the life of his brother who passed away. 20 minutes standing ovation, he could barely speak. And the entire speech, short speech, was about the fact there would be no JFK without the Democratic Party. 
when the Republican Party decided to go after me, the RNC, uh, to go after me with a recall, I saw what a party can do. Organizing an off-year, off-month election, uh, having half of Fox Network out there 24-7 attacking us, nationalizing that election. And it really woke me up to where's my party, the Democratic Party. So it's a point of reflection and criticism, but it's also a point of self-critique and criticism. It made me say, look, stop complaining about it, do something about it. That's why I did seven uh, different states, 20 different billboards as it relates to reproductive freedom and rights, why I did ads in Florida. That's why I used my campaign reelection to do ads in Texas, uh, to go after these guys, put them on the defense, establish a framework where we're developing and designing a narrative and iterating at the, throughout the entire time. And, and so that's, that's my expression of where we are. It's not an indictment of the president, quite the contrary, but it is an indictment of our party at this moment in relationship to the other party at this moment. We have a new CBS poll that asks a question that hasn't been asked before. Not right track, wrong track, but is the country out of control? 80% mm. of our respondents said the country is out of control. Not surprised. How does a president of a country in which 80% of its respondents yeah. say the country is out of control deserve re-election? Boy, it's anyone in this circumstance. The, the, the polarization, the traumatization we've all been through, uh, around the globe you're seeing this. This is hardly unique in the United States. This pandemic, this global pandemic, this once in a generation, once in a lifetime pandemic, it has the direct consequences in terms of the economic and health costs, and then the indirect consequences of, of, of sowing fear and doubt and anxiety that can be easily exploited. You're seeing that on the crime issues, you're seeing that across the spectrum of issues. And so the other side knows how to weaponize grievance. They know how to address and sort of pierce the, you know, the anxiety of the anxious. And, 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 and they weaponize that. They've always done that. And in this moment, they're able to do that with more precision. I would argue a little bit more effectiveness. But I understand that. We've been socially isolated. I mean, hell, before the pandemic, the number one issue was social isolation. I mean, I think the former Surgeon General said that. The number one preventable disease in the United States is social isolation. Now we've been more isolated, more polarized, uh, more anxious in terms of our own economic security and future. Uh, and so it's understandable people feel like that. And so what naturally people revert to is sort of a framework, I was saying in a moment ago, just a power and dominance and a more aggressive mindset when in fact that's not the solution to our problems. And that's where the Democratic Party needs to be much more aggressive is painting a picture of an alternative to address those legitimate fears and that anxiety. Now, whether or not Governor Newsom ever runs for the presidency, you can tell he's already and wants to be seen as a Democrat with a different kind of messenger, basically being a different kind of messenger. And that you heard was his sort of macro take on national politics. When we come back, the micro look, how the House races look in California, and what does he think about the possibility of Kevin McCarthy being the next Speaker of the House? Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. 
Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. And for those of you watching on CBS News streaming, welcome back to the News Hub here in New York City. So continuing our conversation with California Governor Gavin Newsom, one of the things you're going to hear him answer when I asked him is, does this feel to him like someone who's traveling around the country, deeply enmeshed in all the conversation Democrats are having? Is this going to be a red wave? Also, we talked about the uniqueness that California finds itself in. It already has someone from California who's Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. After this midterm, it could have another Californian in the position of Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. Well, what does that mean for California? What does it mean for the nation? What is, what is Governor Newsom's assessment of Kevin McCarthy and what's his relationship with him? Let me ask you to complete this sentence. Kevin McCarthy, as Speaker of the House, fills you with what? Um, well, the first thing that came to my mind, I don't want to say it out loud, but, but fear. I mean, how complicit he has been to not only Trump, but Trumpism more broadly defined. The prospects of Marjorie Taylor Greene, who said about our state when we were facing the worst wildfire season in our history, that the Rothschild family was somehow using lasers that created those wildfires. It's not even, it, it, it should end any prospect of that person ever being taken seriously again. Uh, you know, it's just a remarkable thing. And uh, you know, what he's done to aid and abet this notion, the big lie, uh, sowing doubts around the foundation of our democracy, putting it in peril at risk, uh, how he's aiding and abetting functionally authoritarian leaders across uh, his party, uh, yeah, it scares the hell out of me. How would you describe your relationship with Kevin McCarthy? It's, you know, all of that said, <laughs> you may find this completely ironic, very good on a personal basis. Look, I had a decent working relationship with Donald Trump. Um, we worked well together during the pandemic. Well established, by the way. Uh, I'm not an argumentative person. I may come across that way in terms of asserting myself and trying to protect those that are most vulnerable and push back against the cruelty and the humiliation or the humiliating tendencies of the Republican Party right now. Uh, but Kevin and I do work together, but I don't like his politics and I don't like what he's become. In many ways, he's put a mask on and his face has begun to grow into it. And I fear that he won't have the strength as speaker to push back against those more extreme tendencies. And that's a, it's a real threat. It doesn't mean I dislike him as a human being. It doesn't mean I don't think he's a good husband or father or, or someone who wants to do the right thing, but he's not demonstrated that uh, as of late. And I really fear his speakership. How many uh, Democratic seats in California will you lose this? I'm very worried. I'm going to be doing four congressional races in the next couple of days. All four, five months ago. No, I never expected to get a phone call asking for financial support and to go to rallies and headquarters and walk precincts. I mean, this is remarkable what's happened just in a short period of time. 
Um, those tailwinds that we had post Dobbs, the headwinds that now we're experiencing. Um, does it feel like a red wave? Yeah, of course it does. And, and again, uh, uh, I'm not paid to say that. I'm paid to say, you know, we faint and feel. I mean, I get it. Look, I mean, I could be the cheerleader. I'm also a pragmatist. You feel it. Mm -hmm. It's not just intellectualization based on polling. You feel it. And it goes to my fundamental grievance with my damn party. We're getting crushed on narrative. They're setting the tone. Into, I mean, CRT, now ESG is the new CRT. Um, going after the trans community. I mean, just every, every month designing a new faux, a new false separateness, a new you know, phony debate. And then we're reacting to it. And then they say, there they go again. That's all they want to talk about. I mean, these guys are they're second, they're next level versus my party. It doesn't mean we're right on everything. It doesn't mean we're naive about the economic stress people are facing, particularly with inflation. It doesn't mean uh, that there aren't other fundamental issues we all have to reconcile and affordability in California and issues obviously associated with crime and violence across this country. Of course, we own all that. We should. But there's a larger issue that our party needs to reconcile. Bottom up, not just top down. Not the White House, but as a party to begin to reconcile. We do not have the surround sound. We don't have the, the, the anger machine that those folks have on the other side. And we're going to have to do better in terms of getting on the offense and stopping on the damn defense. So I've been lucky enough in the last month to travel around the country. And almost everywhere I go, I see the same messaging on behalf of Democratic candidates. It's almost entirely about abortion. Yeah. Is that a miscalculation? Uh, it will be determined in 10 days, right? What's your gut? No, it's that and. I mean, if you can't stand up for reproductive rights. My point is, I haven't freedom, heard much and. Well, I think the, I think the forensics that I'm already preparing for of, of a post-election doesn't go so well as, well, we should have pivoted to the economy earlier. I'm already hearing that. Uh, that we're now just starting to focus on that. I, I beg to differ. I mean, a lot of us have been focused on those issues well before. I mean, I just provided $9.5 billion of of inflation adjustment checks uh, to folks up to a thousand bucks to acknowledge those economic stresses. And I think the Democratic Party is trying to do their best uh, in terms of trying to cap costs on insulin and other costs related out-of-pocket healthcare expenses and a lot of good things. That said, from a clarity and messaging perspective, that and this, and this goes back to Kevin McCarthy, you know, who could not immediately defend the fact that he wants to weaponize the debt ceiling and then use it to not only cut taxes for oil companies and large corporations that don't need it, but also cut Medicare and Social Security. That seems a pretty simple message as well that I would argue would be a better closing message perhaps than others. Uh, and that's something, again, you're starting to hear. But in the last analysis, is it too late? That'll be determined on Election Day. So state the case for the Biden re-election. Uh, I don't think there's been two years of more effective policymaking of a modern American president. I mean, just look at the substance of what this president has achieved from a policy perspective for seniors, for youth, for the environment, across the spectrum of issues with no real majority, slim majority. I think it's been extraordinary. I've said it's been a masterclass the last two years, not necessarily in effective communication and generating narrative. But in terms of the substance under the circumstance, with all the headwinds and obfuscation and opposition, with all the challenges globally, 
working through the pandemic, getting us out on the other side, I think it's been remarkable. And so once that dust settles, and it's just two years, I mean, we think you've been president for 20. So it's been two years to turn the page and get out on another side where we can actually start to calm the nerves and focus on a unifying agenda. And the president talks a lot about a unified agenda. Focus on the fact that we all need to be respected and connected, protected. There's some universal values. Start speaking to those values again. Uh, that gives me confidence, not just in a re-election for Joe Biden, but a successful final two years of his first term. As you well know, some Democrats are ambivalent. A small number are opposed to him seeking re-election, are you? No, not at all. Why you're not ambivalent, you're not opposed? Not, not quite the contrary. Neither ambivalent, not opposed, enthusiastically supportive. Count me in, I'm waiting for the phone call. I'm waiting for the, they don't even have to call, text. Uh, I'm ready to join. Uh, I'm ready to make the case. I mean, he's a man of decency and character at a time where that's in limited supply. I don't see that with Ron DeSantis. I don't see that with Donald Trump. I don't see that with, you know, Ted Cruz, people like Marco Rubio, man of decency and character at a time that's where we desperately need. That's leadership, man of moral authority, not just formal authority. So I'm enthusiastic about his prospect. Everyone knows at The Takeout, we like to remind our listeners of acronyms they hear. You heard Governor Newsom refer to CRT, that's critical race theory. He also said ESG, that's environment, social governance. That's an approach to thinking about equity and environment and social and governance policies differently. That's what those two acronyms meant. This week, Anita Dunn, a significant White House advisor, said there's already planning begun for a Biden re-election campaign in 2024 putting the context of that answer that Governor Newsom gave us about what's the case for Biden's reelection in a more immediate and contemporary framing. When we come back, we will have segment three of the takeout and some broader conversations about Ye and Elon Musk. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. You can tell already this is a great pre-election conversation with a significant figure in American politics, California Governor Gavin Newsom. A reminder, we recorded this on October 29th, so some of the answers in this segment you're going to hear about Elon Musk, Twitter, yay. Remember, we talked to him on October 29th. Also, we talked to him about the attack on Speaker Pelosi's husband, Paul, again, October 29th. So many things have happened since then. But we captured Governor Newsom's thoughts about all three of those. And look, Twitter is a huge part of the California economy, which is tech driven. 
And there have been tremendous conversations about what Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter means, what it might mean to discourse, what challenges he might face, and the overall atmosphere, not only pre-Elon Musk taking over Twitter, but what it might be on the other side of that. And Governor Newsom, as you will see, has plenty of thoughts about Elon Musk, Twitter, and Ye, formerly known as Kanye West. Take a listen. Elon Musk plus Twitter equals what? Um, uncertainty at a time when we need a little more certainty, to your prior point. Lots of uncertainty. Uh, I think he's going to have a challenging time finding that right balance. You saw the folks that immediately came online, and then he came online to suggest, well, we need to have an independent adjudication uh, of uh, what's In other words, this will be harder than he thinks. I can't even conceive. Though he's no, he's no dummy by mm -hmm. definition. He's an entrepreneurial disruptor. That's his ideology. Yeah, and he's not naive about how challenging I think finding that right balance will be and making it economically viable at the same time, and what the advertisers are going to look for, uh, and that, at the end of the day, is fundamental reality. That's capitalism and free enterprise, and so that is going to come crashing right up, already has within the first 12 minutes of him taking over on that platform. But I, I'm not willing to submit that he can't figure it out yet. I'm not of that opinion uh, because the consequences of this purchase in terms of not only his own financial uh, position, but his reputation and the impact that could have uh, in terms of his future going forward and the future of SpaceX, obviously, and Tesla itself. You mentioned the uh Marjorie Taylor Greene Rothschild reference. What has been your reaction to the Kanye West story? And some have observed that it took longer than they're comfortable with for the backlash to materialize. Yeah, it's sick. 405, Nazis. So, I mean, this is insane. I don't know what the hell's going on with this country. But is it surprising? President Trump? Where was Kevin McCarthy after President Trump made those anti-Semitic remarks? They're nowhere. The rank racism coming from Tommy Tuberville, nothing, no condemnation. They're giving these guys space. They're aiding and abetting by definition. I don't know what the hell's going on in this country. The anti-Semitism is a disgrace. What kind of people are we? And so this is a serious moment. Was I, there a troubling lack of immediate reaction to Kanye? Yeah. Look, I think some people can you know, see Kanye a little differently than they do the former president or the current representative in any particular capacity. Um, I think there's some, you know, there's some segments of empathy for what he has expressed as challenges he's had in the past, which gave him perhaps a little more space than he otherwise would, should be afforded or deserved. But ultimately, the reaction was pretty swift, if not slow in this context, that he made irreparable, um, well, the damage he's done to his brand um, and the brands that had the courage uh, to denounce it and ultimately cut ties, that will do irreparable harm to him in the future, and, and deservingly so. Uh, all he has is himself to blame and only himself uh, to look at the mirror and say what, I mean, and the fact that he's still being celebrated online, I, I, I look up my TikTok and I see everybody saying, yay was right, all that. I mean, this is serious. This is an underbelly of what's going on in this country. And these guys are exploiting it and they're not calling it out and they're not condemning it. The rank racism, I mean, forget the Southern strategy, Nixon's dog whistles, Reagan's welfare queens. This is altogether something different. Their zest for demonization, their cruelty as a party, mainstream folks, literally like Ron DeSantis. 
I mean, using kids for political props, kids with backpacks, picking them up in one state, sending them to an island as a political prop, attacking gay community for being gay, this notion that you being something is sexualizing something, having guns to the head of people because they signed a ballot, uh, or rather a registration that they were asked to sign, waking them up in their underwear at six in the morning with private police force. Well, what the hell is threatening the Special Olympics with $27 million in fines? What's going on in this country? How are these people celebrated? So you asked me about, yay, you know, we need, to, we need to demand more, and I sure as hell expect more from not only my own party, but the other party, notably. How much of the last 10 minutes of our conversation do you think is wrapped up in the home invasion that led to the beating, the severe beating of Paul Pelosi? Ton. I've seen the dehumanization of Nancy Pelosi. I don't think anyone's been dehumanized like she has consistently. I mean, I watched this one guy, was it Jesse Waters or something on Fox News? What he's been saying about Paul Pelosi the last five, six months? Mocking him consistently? Don't tell me that's not aiding and betting all this. Of course it is. They're sowing the seeds of creating a culture and a climate like this. I mean, it, it's, it's, look online. Look at the sewage that is online that they amplify on these networks and in social media to dehumanize people like Nancy Pelosi and other political leaders. When of course Debbie, it When Debbie Dingell, a distinguished member of Congress, Democrat from Michigan, tells Axios, someone will be killed who is a lawmaker. Is she wrong? I, I don't want to feed that by even suggesting that's possible, but what evidence suggests it's not. I mean, I, I, I wasn't a baby in the 60s. I mean, I wasn't, you know, like, I, look, I know what over the last three years has come in my inbox. <laughs> Trust me, you don't, because I'm not sharing it. I don't even share it with my wife. I got four kids. <laughs> So I know a little bit about this. I mean, it wasn't just a recall against me. <laughs> it was surround sound in every way, shape, or form. Uh, so Of this venom. Uh, at a level, I've, I've had, look, all, it, there's always folks in the extreme. And you roll your eyes. It's just, there's it something, comes with the arena, but this is different. This is something's different here. Mm -hmm. There's, you know... The mind is being stretched. People feel free to shove again. The anti-Semitism is a perfect example of that. The complacency and complicity, this sort of anti-democratic, you know, there's something happening here. That goes to your 80% of people fearing, I get that. And, um, and then the expression where people exploit it uh, for short-term gain at the expense of others. So yeah, I fear that very, very much. And God help us, Democrat or Republican, uh, we are all in this together. As Bill Clinton would say, divorce is not an option. We all want to be loved. We need to love. We all care about our kids. I mean, there's some certain universal values. And we just, once this election over, I, I just hope and pray that we can start to reconcile those differences because this can't continue. It just can't. Um, it can't. We can't absorb it. Uh, forget politics. I mean, when, when kids are going to college and they're checking the registration of a potential roommate and 80% of folks are saying, no, I'll never ever room with someone different party, uh, that doesn't bode well for our future. I don't need to tell you, this has been heavy on politics. Now to some policy. Now we talked to Gavin Newsom a year ago 
Right after he won the California re-election, homelessness was a huge issue in that campaign that he won. And we put that question to him. Listen to what he said then about homelessness in California. Define progress in the next year. Progress is seen on the homeless issue in particular. We've got to see the streets start to improve. We've got to see these encampments removed in a sensible and thoughtful and humane way. We put $12 billion. I mean, it's unprecedented. Most investment we've ever made in the state's history is $950 million. We just put $12 billion because we're running record surpluses to addressing homelessness and all its forms of manifestations, but perhaps most importantly, $3 billion just for mental health housing, for conservatorships, addressing what's happening on the streets in terms of cleaning the streets and dealing with these encampments. People want to see results. I'm resolved to do that. That was Governor Newsom's answer then. California and homelessness is a story that is ongoing and deeply troublesome. We're going to talk about that and the governor's response coming up on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett. Our interview, October 29th with Gavin Newsom here at The Takeout. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. We're going to get to that answer from Governor Gavin Newsom about homelessness in California, but he's drawn a lot of attention for taking out digital ads in places like Florida, contrasting California with Florida. Well, one of the answers back from Florida Republicans was to say California is a place riddled with homelessness, very dirty streets, dangerous streets, kind of a dystopian place. That's what Floridians said about California. You'll hear Governor Newsom's assessment of that and homelessness Also, learning loss, meaning education shutdowns as a result of COVID, California's future economically, and also, is the pandemic over? Because we asked Governor Newsom about an extension of emergency powers as governor there and why he still believes he needs them. Again, Governor Gavin Newsom, we recorded this October 29th, Santa Fe, New Mexico. He was on the road trying to help out a vulnerable Democrat or potentially vulnerable Democrat, which is the overall atmosphere around this whole conversation. When we sat down right after the recall, you were pretty bullish about the $12 billion California was allocating to deal with homelessness. Yep. Plus the means by which cities had to be measured. Yeah place their metrics in front of you yep. and outside observers. Yep. Yet a Politico headline just a month ago, yep. rising homelessness is tearing California cities apart. No, they're right. It's $15.3 billion now. I have 75 homeless accountability plans on my desk. Next week, uh, we'll be presenting our analysis back to the cities and counties. We've seeded unprecedented reforms 
and I could be more proud of the work we have done in the next few years, you're going to see real results on encampments in particular, on addressing the issues of mental health in particular, on rebuilding our behavioral health system more broadly. We did something called Care Court on conservatorships, the most significant reform in half a century. I'll put up what we're doing against any others in the country. 68,000 people we've gotten off the streets in the last two years. Doesn't feel like it, but numerically, it doesn't look it's a like fact. it either. No, I get it. You've said unacceptable. Unacceptable. The state is too damn dirty. Yeah, dirty, homeless, campments. Unsafe for them, unsafe for pedestrians. Ah, look, I don't want to overstate it. California's a remarkable state, had a $101.4 billion operating surplus, as you say, is arguably uh, the fourth largest economy in the world. We had more record-breaking venture capital, record reserves, record low unemployment. Uh, we just exp expressed ourselves with the highest GDP of any uh, large state in America, 7.8%. So we're thriving in many ways. Uh, but this issue is a, in 30 plus years in the making. I inherited over 110,000 people on the streets when I got here. The pandemic made things more challenging. It was like about 160,000 now is Depends, the Depends, plus or minus. That was a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And so now we're leaning in aggressively. Not the mayor of California, but I'm the first governor in California to actually ever put out a plan and put out resources and strategies and money. State was nowhere to be found four years ago on this issue. So it took decades in the making, and we are committed over the next number of years to see demonstrable results. And our nation-leading programs like Home Key and Room Key are being replicated in states across this country. And 68,000 people is not an insignificant number of people. But the dynamic nature of the world we're living in, it's not a static number, mm -mm. requires vigilance at the next level. And again, the difference is I'm not running away from that issue. We own it. I take accountability as governor of California, 476 cities, and we're going to be doing things uh, that I think will make uh, the taxpayers um, proud and more importantly, will save lives in the process. We have uh, polling data that's identified a demographic we call pressurized parents. Interesting. Uh, parents stressed out by the pandemic, also stressed out by the educational problems or challenges confronted by having their children at home and doing this online. Amen. There was federal statistics that came out recently. There was a decline nationwide. I looked and dug into the uh, Stanford-Harvard data about <laughs> California. No worse than Texas and California. They, they, they say they're better because they opened up. California didn't. The education numbers are relatively the same, but declining in yep, both. All of us. Do you have any after action, either regrets or insights about how that particular part of the pandemic was handled? Well, it was interesting and we outperformed tech, uh, Florida as it relates to eighth grade math and eighth grade reading, but we all did badly. But this notion that red states, blue states and the approach on education was determinative in terms of the uh, academic outcomes proves absolutely untrue on the basis of those independent analysis. Look, we recognize we have a lot of work to do with learning loss. No one's denying that. The country saw that slide. We did a little About bit About a half an academic year. Yeah. So we all own that. Red states, blue states. Here's what we're doing. I mean, unprecedented. We did $23.8 billion to address learning loss. High-dose tutoring, reading specialists, extending the school year, nine hours a day of school instruction, summer school, after school for all, preschool for all. We funded all those programs. We were just recognized by a pretty conservative national group for our transformational policies that we have introduced. It's gonna take a number of years to see them actualize, but in terms of our education reform, no one was denied it. No one was sitting there uh, shocked and surprised by those 
uh, those results. Uh, but I don't know there were many states that were more aggressive in terms of trying to address that learning loss in real time than California. And the numbers, uh, I think, suggest that we did relatively well, as badly as we all did. I'm not proud of all of that. That was difficult for all of us. But I am proud of the fact we have 54% less per capita deaths in the state of Florida. I am proud of the fact that our economy grew at a faster rate in 2021 and contracted at a lower rate in 2020. So on health and wealth, California outperformed states like Florida and Texas, Indiana, and the nation as a whole. Last question. You recently said you were going to continue to hold your emergency powers that are derived out of COVID until February. Yep. Why? Because California has a lot of unique rules and regulations. Let me give you one. Unless we have that emergency authorization, every PCR test before the results go back to the patient, under the existing rules in the state of California, a doctor would have to sign off on each and every one of them without that emergency declaration. So there are certain rules that are unique to California in terms of scope of practice that are a burden. We had 569 provisions in the old rules. We're down to 27. We'll be down to four in a few months. So we've substantially rolled them back. And the ones that are still in place, we're working with the legislature to fix in February. Is the pandemic over? We're in an epidemic phase or endemic rather phase of this pandemic. Uh, we're not putting, uh, we put out the first in the nation smarter plan, the endemic plan. Uh, each one is an acronym around shots and masks and around awareness and about uh, making sure that we're prepared to scale up in real time. We're mindful, uh, but no, we're out of, I think, the pandemic phase, uh, but we are not out of the woods, so to speak, and we're not going to drop the ball and we're not going to walk away. There's just too much, that, too many lives that have been lost, too much damage has been done to the economy, uh, and we're not going to be, we're not going to double down on stupid by walking away and thinking this thing is behind us. Governor, it's always a pleasure. Great to be back with you. Whatever you think of Governor Gavin Newsom of California, he is a Democrat lots of other Democrats talk about. Whether or not he runs for the presidency 2024, he says he's not or not interested, whatever. He may have other ambitions. He's got huge fundraising potential. He's got a huge digital network. He is a draw. Democrats will continue to talk about him. That's why we brought this interview to you. We hope everyone here at the takeout and while I'm here in the New York City Hub and our broadcast center, hope you have a safe and active and participatory midterm election. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. 
This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.